The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for The Bigger Picture this week is Tim Evans. Tim is Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. And as ever, we're going to talk about various topics. But where are you going to begin this week, Tim? Well, I think we've got to start with the word stagflation. Um, which technically, you know, stagflation is a combination of price inflation um, and GDP stagnation. So it's basically what it means is that rising prices in our lives, day to day for things, um, but that the economy doesn't grow. And a lot of people right across the, the political spectrum um, are now speculating that this is clearly on the cards. And the question is, um, will it be, as the Bank of England has indicated, a sort of temporary blip? So we will see some price rises, uh, as we're seeing at the moment, um, for the next few months, but then things will calm down and cool off. Or is this something much more serious and that we could be in course for a, for a dose of inflation over the years ahead? In fact, I, I suppose the ultimate question is, could the 2020s be reminiscent of the... Uh, the inflationary era that was the 1970s. And I well remember when inflation peaked in 1974-5 at around 25%. But I think the average uh, inflation rate uh, across the 70s was 8%. So um, uh, serious issue this and could have a, a, a devastating impact on all kinds of people, businesses, lifestyles, and huge conundrums also for the public sector. Yes, uh, you talk about the Bank of England then talking about it being transitory and, and and inflation not actually going very high. But of course, they're now revising um, their opinion to say that it's less transitory than they thought it was before, and then it may go higher than they thought before. Uh, they do seem to be slightly behind the curve. And the problem is that the Bank of England is supposed to be heading it off rather than suddenly saying, oh, there's a bit of inflation here. We didn't actually realise that was going to happen. Um, but how can you um, head it off when... Um, the economy is in such a precarious state. You would imagine, perhaps, that at the end of a, an extraordinary year and a half, an economy that's basically been put into a deep freeze, that raising taxes might not be necessarily the thing that's going to get it into a lively state again. But that's not how um, the powers that be seem to be thinking. Indeed. And, of course, the problem is that uh, the way that a lot of the... Um, uh, a lot of the inflation uh, of the 70s was in effect bled out of the system was Paul Volcker, um, who was the chair of the Federal Reserve at the time, uh, and, and, and the people around him, they increased uh, the interest rate dramatically. So they increased what, what you might call the price of money. Mm. Um, and, and the government you know, tightened its belt in the US and, and here also under Margaret Thatcher, um, and and it, it, you know and then inflation sub subsided. The, the the problem is, of course, that with Britain now somewhere around one hundred and seven percent of GDP in in debt, um, you know, if you increase um, if you increase the interest rates in your central bank by one percent. Um, but you're the government and you've got more than two trillion pounds of debt, that additional interest payment you have to make, um, you know, is something akin to, you know, a third or, or half the size 
or potentially of departments like the Ministry of Defence. Mm. So not only would this have serious ramifications for the for the, for the functioning of, of 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 the public sector, but of course, you know, it would also have a huge impact on people's mortgage payments um, and 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 the way businesses can service their debts. So. The central bank um, and, and governments are a little, and it's not just in the UK. I mean, this is right across North America, much of Europe. You know, this is a this is a global phenomena, really. Um, you know, with all the indebtedness that's around, lots and lots of policymakers are between a rock and a hard place. And of course, the real problem is once you unleash inflation, um, you know, it, it's rather like throwing matches on a foam sofa. Yeah, you think you can whack it out with a newspaper your hand or or blow it out but sometimes it catches light and when it and when it goes it soars and then the inflation almost becomes a trick of the mind you know people expect it they demand wage increases and and it almost becomes it stops being purely an economic phenomena it literally becomes um, a psychological phenomena um uh, where um employers and employees um and and um, producers and consumers start to game each other, and and that's when it really, really can take off. Um, you talked about the seventies, but uh, as we've discussed several times over the last few years, there's a, a big difference now than compared to the seventies. I mean, since the financial crisis, which was caused by excess debt, effectively, um, we had time to correct that. But in fact, debt levels are staggeringly greater than they were at the time of the financial crisis 2007-8. It's not just government debt, but corporate debt, personal debt as well. Um, I mean, the the only way to stave off inflation, apart, of course, from an economy that's going to recession, that might hit inflation on the head, but the normal way is, as you point out, by raising interest rates. But I mean, how on earth can can you do that? Well, I, I mean, I'm 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 mystified. I just don't quite see what on earth is going to. Well, I can see all too clearly. I think what's going to happen, but it's it's not much fun. Yes, and and, and the first thing is that um, uh, a um, if you do raise interest rates, then as I've said, that will have huge implications for um, uh, the public sector. It will have huge implications for the private sector. Um, but all the real risk here is that ultimately this bleeds out uh, into politics with serious polarizing effect. I, you know, I think it was I think it was Lenin um, who rightly said that if you want a revolution, then you um, basically um, grind the middle classes uh, between um, high inflation and and um, and uh, sort of high tax and high debt, and and this is this is indeed a recipe for polarization. And of course, in a sense, you couldn't have had uh, Adolf Hitler um, um, if you hadn't had the hyperinflation in Germany in in the early nineteen twenties. So, in- inflation is a really serious driver of change, and I think it was the uh, it was uh, Friedrich Hayek, the Nobel laureate in economics, who, who basically, um, in some of his work, argued that if you really want to understand history and major historic events and figures and wars and conflicts and and, and extremism, then then a good place to start mm. was with the economics yes. of inflation. Yes. Um, 
the thing is, you, you talk about one of the problems of inflation, that people are expecting inflation, therefore they ask for higher wages and that just the whole thing just becomes um, really like some sort of vicious circle. But we have a government that with ministers saying what they want is higher wages. It's very odd. It's normally the workers who ask for it, but now it's the government saying, no, we want higher wages. Yep. So I think that, um, I mean, I can understand that the British government and other governments abroad, I mean, the key thing to understand here is not to get bogged down at purely what our government is saying here. Our government, I have to say, is being echoed by other governments right across Europe, whether they're left, right, up or down. Mm. Um, you often, often people make a mistake of looking at you know, uh, the domestic scene, looking at who's in power and then imputing upon that some wicked trickery from one political side or not. Actually, when you're part of a political elite, um, you know, and they talk regularly and they sort of wine, dine and compare notes. Um, you're much better to look over the silo, look over the parapet, look internationally, and you'll find often um, that what is being sold as unique at home is going on elsewhere. And I think this is a good example. So let's be clear, we've been through a pandemic. The governments of the world are turning on the taps. They're pouring fortunes, large sums of money into infrastructure, Um Lots of public works. It's not just Britain with HS2 or spaceports or all kinds of projects, but you look right, you know, look at Biden and his plan for investing in US infrastructure. This is something that's being done right across the world. And so what's happening is the demand for um, steel and wood and all the rest of it is soaring. In addition to that, the private sector is opening. And of course, um, suppliers and factories uh, have been closed for a long time. So you've got a surge in demand um, as we come out of the pandemic. Uh, we've got a surge in demand from the public and private sector, and we've had much less production of things um, for the last 18 months. And of course, that is fueling it. Now, the consequence of that is that as the inflation starts to make its mark, um, I think two things. One is that the government, the British government, um, thinks that if you have a period of inflation, then that will erode um, the debt um, because, of course, inflation eats into debt because it debases, mm. to use an old-fashioned term, um, uh, the value of money, so you, you you clear debt quite easily. As Hayek said, in, in a sense, inflation is best conceived as some form of hidden tax. If you can tax people with inflation at 3% a year, then, then that's in fact a 30% a, a tax on, on capital and income over, over a decade, potentially. Um, the other side is the, the politics of this. I mean, I can understand that these governments and the British government think that, yes, to come out of the pandemic, um, you pump prime, uh, you make investments, you are um, um, positive, you're optimistic, and that you try and keep the inflation under check. You know, you have a period of it for a year or so. Um, but then, um, closer to the next election, hoping that you've got people off furlough, hoping that because you've got a million unemployed um, and a million jobs available, that Adam Smith's, you know, uh, hidden hand. Um, uh, gets people into the right jobs that we discover through the language of price what people's real value is. Um, you know how much in this new economy is a is a truck driver really 
be worth or a cleaner or a hospital port or whatever, mm. that people start to be paid more and, and that we discover what the value of people really are, that we, that we invest in skills, but that the government will try, or whether it's just before or claim they're going to do it just after the election, they then will try and take a penny off tax. And the vision they will try to create, I think, over the following 5, 10, 15 years, is then ultimately of a lower tax, higher growth economy. Remember, one of the charges that Tony Blair made against Brexit, and I think he's right, um, is that in the longer term, it would preclude Britain um, from maintaining the sort of consensual butt post-war welfare consensus that we've had, and it would just gently nudge over the years ahead Britain into a more sort of Southeast Asian tiger sort of scenario where you, the, the state over time um, uh, becomes slightly smaller. So I think that, the, for example, I think Boris Johnson thinks that the politics of this is have a bit of a short-term splurge to get us over what we've all just been through, use a bit of inflation to get rid of a bit of debt, but then beyond that, oh, and by the way, put the Labour Party in a killing ground, i.e. the Labour Party have not uh, approved the recent tax hike, but that when the Tories try, fingers crossed, to come and cut taxes, this is how I think they think, that, um, that Labour will fall into a killing ground again when the Tories try to make real this longer-term vision of a high-skilled, higher-growth, but lower-taxed economy. Let's just pause for uh, a moment, Tim. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. And Tim, before we leave the subject, though, what, what people want from a government is some degree of competence that they know what they're doing. Uh, you talk about other countries having similar problems to us at the, uh, at the same time, but I mean, what's being referred to as the effing uh, crisis here at the moment, energy, fuel and food, doesn't exactly give the impression that the government or the civil service is on top of things at all, does it? Or am I just being unfair? Um, I, I think that uh, almost universally, the pandemic did shore up opinion poll ratings for an awful lot of governments around the world. It, it seems that when a big crisis like this um, hits, um, public opinion sort of swings behind, it has empathy for people in power. Um, but when that crisis comes to an end and, and you almost come to pay, uh, you know, a more rounded, what you might call the, the, the butcher's bill, mm. when, you, when you don't just look at the NHS and the people who died of COVID, um, and, and the development of vaccines and, and, and the lockdown. But when you actually then move on to look at the wider costs in terms of NHS waiting lists, in terms of suicides, in terms of uh, increased mental health costs, things like depression, then you look at inflation um, uh, 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 and you discover 
um, that, you know, for example, you have a shortage of truck drivers, which clearly we do here. Um, I mean, we probably have 100,000 drivers, um, uh, a shortage of 100,000 drivers. It's similar elsewhere. In Germany, the current figure is there's 60,000 short. And, and, and it could well be that quite quickly, um, all these incumbent governments therefore become quite unpopular um, because their fortunes are reversed, whereas they were seen to be doing a reasonable job and something the public could understand and empathise with during the crisis, you know, a year or two later, um, as that butcher's bill manifests, the public becomes sceptical. I mean, we've already seen, for example, a change of regime um, in Germany, and, and who knows what would happen um, if there was an election in the next 12 months in Britain. Um, it's difficult to say, isn't it? Mm. Thank you. Well, let us change... Uh subject and uh one of the topics that you've returned to a few times uh, as we've had these conversations over the last um uh, several years is is britain and the space race i know it's something that's interests you and i think that's what you'd like to talk about now indeed um there's been lots recently um about um uh the government's plan which has just been published um the, the government's sort of strategy for for space and the reason i'm excited about this is because um if Britain uh, is going to move to, um, you know, a, 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 a sustained period of growth um, and, and higher skills and, and better pay in the future, if, you know, and I think that's what we all want ultimately. I think everyone of every political persuasion wants that. Um, if, if that was going to happen, then I think that really important new sectors like, like space will be at the heart. And, and it's really in this context that the government have issued their um, space strategy. Um, Boris Johnson being, you know, as, as boosterish as ever, um, immediately announced over and above, you know, global Britain that he wanted to create, or well, he's promised, a galactic Britain. Um, uh, but what's really intriguing about this is that the government has sort of issued some numbers. So already our space industry is worth £16 billion a year, and it currently employs about 45,000 people. Um, but the sector globally is projected to double in size uh, within the next few years, within this decade, um, and will be is estimated to be close to the value of around half a trillion um, pounds. And what's really clear is that, that the, the UK government want a larger slice of that growing pie. This is one of those areas that is absolutely going to boom. I mean, it's going to see, you know, a, you know, um, this dramatic sort of increase in terms of turnover and growth, um, and, what, and what the government wants is to is is for Britain to become um, probably the European leader in that area. And um, whilst if we were here five years ago, people were starting to talk about two or three spaceports. What the government have now said in their document is that they want seven spaceports, and they've started you know, in the document to really detail the sort of operations. It's not just satellites, but it's all kinds of, you know, uh, rockets can be launched, some will be launched off the back of aircraft. And it really is quite interesting. I mean, I'm not a massive science fiction buff, but what's interesting, I, I think, in the course of a human life is to see that things that might have been quite fanciful or, or, or a dream when you were a kid, you know, start to become reality as, as you move into your 50s and, and that you, in golfing terms, enter on the back nine. So the government have now identified um, um, Shetland in Scotland, um, Sutherland in Scotland, the Western Isles of Scotland, 
Campbelltown in Scotland, Presswick in Scotland, Snowdonia in Wales, and Newquay in England. So, uh, you know, and, and some of these, you know, the first three I mentioned will be sort of ground launch directly from a, from a spaceport. Mm. But the, the last four, Campbelltown, Presswick, uh, Snowdonia, and Newquay, will, um, will, uh, will, 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 will encourage, you know, air launch from, from carrier aircraft. But, but these seven sites are, are now part of the government plan. And, and the prime minister said that he hopes that the first launches will be as early as next year. So it's, it is interesting because, you know, we've talked an awful lot over the years about roads or another runway at Heathrow um, or high-speed rail. Mm. Um, this is truly something out of this world. It's interesting. I mean, a lot of the publicity surrounding anything to do with space recently has been American billionaires um, popping up into space and having a look. But obviously, um, satellite technology is staggeringly important to everyday life now. And one of the problems, of course, is that it, you know if you tack um, uh, a country's um, satellites or the satellites that a country relies upon, of course, you can actually cripple its defences. So presumably we're talking about defence being a large part of the reason for wanting to do this. Yes, and um, just as the United States have developed um, their, their US Space Command, so the Royal Air Force um, ha have for some time been the, the, the lead military um, arm um, in, in, in launching um, a UK um, space endeavour. Um, uh, I can't remember quite the RAF motto at Astro, something on to the stars or whatever, um, which they developed in, 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 in the, the end of the First World War or, or the 1920s. But so, so certainly in terms of their motto, they were ahead. But, but, but the serious point is, yes, you know, in an age of, um, of cyber warfare, in an age of potentially, you know, satellites crippling um, uh, IC, uh, uh, missiles. Um, it, it wasn't that long ago where the Chinese demonstrated, I think, that, that they, they, they could actually use satellites to attack other objects, um, military communications, all these things. You know, this is very, very important for the Ministry of Defence. And Ben Wallace uh, has clearly been involved in the development of the strategy um, as Minister of Defence. I mean, the other thing is, um, of course, if you think about it, um, whether you're in the Ministry of Defence or you're in the government, long gone are the days where the public sector, be it the European Space Agency or NASA, had a monopoly on these things. We're moving much more into a blurred economy, a mixed economy mm -hmm. in space. And I can imagine that the Ministry of Defence, no doubt, will be contracting with all kinds of privateers in the future. You know, don't let's forget that when Dominic Cummings was in number 10, he actually encouraged um the uk government to spend 500 million pounds on one web uh, which was this bankrupt uh, satellite company uh, to compete with jeff bezos and elon musk uh, and to provide ultra fast broadband you know services um, um the, the government strategy has promised that that again by the end of next year that that company which they've made that huge investment in will have more than 600 satellites in orbit so um this is this is about britain um in the commercial sector and for its economic growth and prosperity and for its military capability um and for its future well-being um getting involved in something that's very important well the other thing just to note very briefly simon is that if we were here in 1930s and 40s and you asked 
scientists at that time, you know, what were the leading uh, countries, which countries would they imagine um, that would that, that would make the leap into um, space? Um, at the time, I think a lot of people wouldn't just have said um, Germany um, um, or, or the United States or indeed later Russia, but that Britain absolutely would have been at the cutting edge of their thought as well. And in many ways, Britain uh, would have been able to, to engage the space race if its economy had been, you know, we had the technical skills, we had all kinds of scientists. Um, I think what the government are trying to do is slightly here go back to the future. We're trying to re-engage um, uh, a part of the economy that we sort of abrogated, certainly from the 1950s onwards. I think in several other areas where that's also um, true. <laughs> but uh, Tim, okay, that sounds relatively encouraging. Let us uh, have one of these and then we'll uh, have our final topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. I'm in conversation for The Bigger Picture with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, what's our final topic? Our final topic is, um, um, it's about those blue plaques uh, that we see in London and um, how they are part of our broader discourse around heroes, heroines, success, icons, um, and the people who've made a profound change and enriched our lives. I certainly have skin in the game here because in the mid 1960s, my mother um, led a campaign, a successful campaign, to have a blue plaque put up in Wardour Street in London, Soho, to her godfather, William Clarkson, who was the greatest costumier of the Victorian and Edwardian period and, um, and uh, the greatest costumier um, uh, just after the First World War as well. And my mother worked with everyone from uh, people like um, uh, Dame Sybil Thorndike and Sir Lawrence Olivier. She led the campaign and the London County Council acknowledged that he'd made a massive contribution to the world of the theatre and, co and, and, and costumes. And, um, and anyone who wants to go to Wardour Street can see the plaque. What, what's really interesting about this article um, that I've been reading in The Guardian is that it notes that only 2% of London's blue plaques uh, commemorate black people. And that quite rightly, um, English heritage, who now really lead, they're the lead body on plaques. It used to be local government, it used to be places like London County Council, that, that they're now um, looking to rebalance things. In, in my terms, I guess they're looking to modernise and update. Yeah. Um, and, and so they're doing some really important things that I have to say I approve of. The first is um, a lot more women now are being represented um, in, in the blue plaques uh, and also, um, uh, uh, also a lot more black people. Um, some of my favourites are uh, Bob Marley, um, who lived in Chelsea for a time, um, in the 70s, quite rightly, has a blue plaque, wonderful blue plaque, near Oakley Street. Um, Jimi Hendrix, a great guitarist, um, uh, lived in London in 1968-9, in, in, in that heady period, and he has a blue plaque. And, and there are lots more coming as well. And one that yes, really, I'm, really, I'm, I'm rather more concerned about people like 
Samuel Coleridge Taylor rather than these sort of 60s pop musicians that you seem so well, fond of, Tim. There we, no, there we are. There we are. And you're quite right. I mean, uh, Coleridge Taylor was, was amazing. And of course, tragic. He died too young. I think he died when he was only 28. Um, he just collapsed on, um, on, on West Croydon Station. Um, when he did die, by the way, because he was the, you know, you're right, he was the sort of George back of his day. Yeah. But when he died, um, um, uh, there was actually his coffin uh, processed through the streets and, um, and people lined the streets for over three miles, uh, which is quite remarkable. Yeah. But anyway, but one couple that's sort of having um, a blue plant quite recently, but it's a wonderful couple, William uh, and Ellen Craft, who had been in the southern US state of Georgia, and they had been slaves, but they managed to escape. Um, a fair-skinned Ellen posed as a white man and her husband William as his servant. They got to England and they toured England. They got to England as refugees in, 19, in 1850 and they toured the UK campaigning against slavery uh, before settling in my part of London, what we now call the London Borough of Hammersmith and Fulham. So um, uh, their story is remarkable and and not only was their escape glorious, but their campaigning was amazing and they absolutely deserve to be up there. So as a Londoner and who's someone who's sort of interested in the, the politics of day-to-day -day discourse, uh, I think this is really good, but it represents, doesn't it, um, the more diverse, uh, inclusive um, and equal world that, 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 that we rightly are inhabiting as Londoners. Yes. Tim. Thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans. Tim is Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. And uh, Tim will be back um, giving us the bigger picture at the same time in a fortnight. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.